Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much, Mary Lou, uh, Kelly, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And before we start, if I could just have you uh, give a little bit more background information about yourself. Thanks. Sure. Well, first of all, Wendy, uh, it's a delight to be here and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, So I am a social worker and I um, worked in the in the field of social work in the healthcare system uh, in the late 70s. Uh, And in 1980, I went uh, full time uh, to Lakehead University. So I have a PhD in human and social development and was on the faculty of social work at Lakehead University for 35 years, uh, retiring in 2015. So I actually am retired at the moment, uh, living in Ottawa, but continuing in supporting long-term care through providing education and and different sorts of things. And my area of focus all throughout my academic career was the field of gerontology, aging, and palliative care. So I conducted research uh, in in many settings, but I did a lot of work uh, in the long-term care home setting. So I imagine we'll focus quite a bit on that now. No, perfect. Thank you so much for that. And now we'll start with the fact of, in terms of the definition of palliative care and end of life, unfortunately, these two terms are used interchangeably, but they mean different things. If you can just provide a definition, explanation of them both, that'd be great. Sure. And I'm going to use long-term care um, as an example. Uh, So the palliative approach to care primarily is a philosophy. It's actually not a service. Uh, The palliative approach to care means that somebody has a life-limiting illness. The goal of the illness is not cure. Uh, but the goal of illness is very um, careful um, treatment and management to increase people's quality of life, uh, to ensure that they have a sense of control, they feel a sense of of dignity um, throughout their illness journey, and to really support family. So the palliative approach just acknowledges that, you know, cure is not likely going to be uh, part of this individual's journey, but that doesn't mean they can't live sometimes a long, long time uh, with with their illness, learning to live live with their illness uh, with, with the proper support. And I mean, this philosophy is a perfect fit for an aging population. I mean, this is what we have in our society today. Um, Many, many people who are aging are are aging with uh, some kind of chronic disease. And, you know, the focus is um, live well with with the health that you have. End of life, on the other hand, is um, when someone is imminently dying. Uh, that, uh, you know, they might be looking at days, weeks, or months, but there is a fairly defined imminency around uh, their end of life. And there's a lot greater emphasis um, 
in, in the end of life situation on pain and symptom management, uh, support you know, for anticipatory grief and, and then ultimately the bereavement. So end of life is always a part of the palliative approach, but it is that very last part of the journey. No, thank you so much for that. That's really great to know those differences and to know what they actually mean. And so those words are not being used interchangeably, meaning the same thing. Now, as a social worker, what would your role then be in terms of with the palliative approach and with the end of life in long-term care? Yeah, so I think one of the really um, unique features of long-term care in the healthcare system is that it is a resident's home and um, it is the place that they live. And in a certain way, although the staff don't live there, uh, the staff are very, very much a part of the day-to-day -day experience of living in a, in a long-term care home. Uh, my mother, who recently died at almost 95, um, lived in a senior's uh, residence. And she would say to me, Mary Lou, the most important thing in, in this place where I live is, is the staff and the relationships that are built with the staff. So I think although medical care and support and personal care and support are critically important, don't, don't uh, interpret what I'm saying that I don't think that. Um, what is really unique in a long-term care environment is relationships, communication, making everyday meaningful. Um, and a social worker plays a very important part in, in all of that, uh, both directly with, with residents. Uh, when they first come into a long-term care home, of course, um, there's all of the anxiety of the adjustment to living in a new environment probably grief at leaving behind uh, a longtime home, uh, neighbors, sometimes sadly a partner who is not transitioning uh, into living in long-term care. Um, so, you know, social workers can play a very, very important role around what we call supportive care. And these are, this is around normal life transitions lots of reassurance, uh, giving people one-on-one -on -one, um, support, um, introducing them to other residents in the home that may, they may have things in common with, um, helping them connect with uh, whatever other kind of programs. And, and then also the other thing the social workers do is um, work with the families. So the families, of course, often feel sad, they feel guilty, um, a feeling a sense of abandonment. And I think it's, it's really important to um, provide families with, with a lot of support and also a, a lot of information and education about what to expect. So uh, while you wouldn't spend time on this on the, on the day of admission, likely there's way too much going on, I was shocked when I talked to families where a resident had come into long-term care 
And nobody had ever at any point told them that the resident could live for his or her life, the rest of their life in the home. And when the time came, they, they could receive the palliative approach to care and die at home in long-term care. That had never been mentioned. It wasn't in the resident handbook. There was no brochure offered them. So these, these are some of the things that I think are important and a social worker plays an important role there. They also just play an important role on the team, supporting other members of the staff. 80% um, of the workforce are PSWs. They are the um, foundation of long-term care and they are so critically important and um, but they have tough jobs. They, they, have, uh, they provide care in some tough situations. Um, they have to have very sometimes difficult conversations with residents who share with them experiences. Um, and so social workers spend time supporting staff and supporting other team members. When end of life comes, um, they would frequently take take part in a care conference, uh, participate in advanced care planning discussions about the wishes of the resident and maybe cultural and spiritual values, make sure that everybody understands what's happening and is well prepared for what's going to happen. Um, anticipatory grief, I mentioned, uh, is when it's an expected death and, and you know that. And of course, you already start to imagine um, what life will be like without that person. And then the bereavement phase, not just for the family, which the social worker has an important role, but again, for the staff and for the other residents. What if you had been sitting at the table with Irene, my mother, for 10 years, and then all of a sudden she disappears? No, that's very true because you mentioned as well about the, the guilt that some family members may have, you know, through the admitting process. And then, of course, um, you know, that that separation and then, of course, coming to the fact or the realization this person is not going to their loved one is not going to be around anymore. So how exactly that, you know, as the role of the social worker would really help the loved one to to kind of get over that and to be able to well not necessarily get over that but to to cope what would be the coping um, strategies there oh to help them learn to live with it well i mean i think you have to just um reassure the person that probably the caregiving that they have done in the past has been extremely valuable and important um, and they've, they've done the best they can. And um, information about the progression of illness, I think, is also a very, very important thing. Uh, most people coming into long-term care um, have a chronic disease. It, it could be dementia. It should, could be uh, COPD. It could be heart failure. Um, but there is a certain point in time in many of these illness trajectories that, that the actual practicalities of doing the care just, just becomes too much. 
And, and I guess the other thing I would say you can do is really help the family understand that it's a transition, but not an abandonment. So their role in the resident's life and in the life of the long-term care home can continue to be equally meaningful. Um, they can obviously visit. Uh, and I mean, we're not talking about COVID now, which is another whole thing, but, you know, they, they are still a part of that individual's life um, in the home and can, you know, focus on what are those important and very special things that they can continue to do that will contribute to the comfort, the dignity, the continuity, and that yeah. sort of thing. So focusing maybe on the future and yes. what can be done and continuing to validate the importance of that. Perfect. Yeah, just evaluating the, the time that they still have with that person. Yeah. So that's great. Thank you. And then with now here in Ontario, there was the passing of Bill 3, the Compassionate Care Act. And how do you think this will now assist uh, with the, I guess, with the re-imaging of long-term care to make sure the palliative approach is now provided uh, in those settings? Well, I think one of the um, important aspects of it is, is um, just recognition that, that long-term care homes need a lot more resources to, to do this very, very important work that, that we're talking about. And, um, you know, we always said palliative care is not high tech, it's high touch. Uh, it, it's about communication and emotional support and education and, and that takes people and it, it takes, um, well-educated people who understand the palliative approach and how to do it, but have time to do it. That, that it's, you know, uh, recognized as, you know, a very, very important uh, care task to sit at the bedside for 15 or 20 minutes and talk to that resident and family member about what is happening and reassure them about what is happening. And I mean, I will also uh, state that you can't legislate humanistic care. I mean, legislation is an enabler. Um, and I, I really personally um, find that whenever there's a shortcoming identified, I mean, the default seems to be, well, let's throw more regulations at it or have more inspections. Um, but actually, I feel, getting back to my, my previous comment, that it's really a community of people in, in relationship. I mean, a lot of these things have to be nurtured from the bottom. And you're not nurturing people through a regulatory process. So I'm not, I think it's important to have legislation. I think it's important to have regulations, but I don't think it's the solution to the problem. I think the solution to the problem is um, more staff, 
more well-educated and prepared and supported staff, um, more funding so that they can have continuity of the staff, they have more full-time staff, and um, just um, respecting the work that these frontline workers do, which is so, so critically important. Absolutely, I definitely 100% agree with you there. Because I mean, now in terms of, I guess, with the, the financial impacts that the families may have, how does a social worker then assist with the concerning overall care of that loved one when it comes to end of life? And of course, if they have been under the palliative approach? Um, the financial impact of the cost of care? Or the, cost of, the cost of care and then when, if, when that individual dies, you know, just that support to be able to, to manage that as to what those costs would be. Oh, the, the thing is that in a long-term care home, and if you take, um, take the foundational information that the average length of stay in a long-term care home in Ontario is about 18 months, and if we do a good job of implementing the palliative approach, uh, the kinds of things that you're describing, which the social worker absolutely can help you, you know, help families with, absolutely. Um, but they should not be doing it at the time of death when it's a crisis and everybody's upset. Um, you know, earlier on, so in the work that I did in long-term care, I proposed kind of this a seven processes of implementing the palliative approach in long-term care, beginning right at admission, which I talked about, you know, at least making sure that people know that this could be their home for the rest of their lives. But once the person settled in um, and the social worker can, uh, you know, let them know what other kinds of helps and supports they can do along the way. You know, these kinds of, um, you know, basic education about the practical things can all be done. And, and they can all be done also uh, in a group setting with the family council or a group of families or one-on-one. Or -on -one. There's terrific literature out there, pamphlets and brochures, um, that can be provided to families. So I, I would just, you know, make the point that uh, there's a year and a half, I mean, in general, um, to gradually make people aware of all the things they, they need to know. And, and it is very important because there's enough stress uh, and grief and regret and I mean, as far as funerals are concerned, um, I mean, they can all be pre-discussed, it can be pre-planned, um, families, you know, can, can all be involved. And, you know, it, it actually can be quite a healing uh, thing, you know, to um, have these conversations amongst the family uh, in advance. So I take it like these type of conversations should be part of the advanced care planning and to be in place during yeah. the whole entire time as well? Yeah, so advanced care planning really is conversations. 
it it's um, it's an advance. So it's you know supposed to not be when people are imminently dying. It's when they're not yet imminently dying. And it, it's it's really about values and wishes and beliefs um, for their care before they die. Um, and also any wishes they have for um, their funeral, their celebration, after death. Um, but these are all conversations. Um, you know, when you actually get to the point where the person um, is approaching, you know, end of life from a more medical uh, perspective, uh, the conversations switch to what we call goals of care. And it really um, is about, you know, deciding it is, is your goal to live longer or is your goal to live better? And what are the implications of one versus the other? And um, what, what would that individual's wishes, which hopefully they've shared with you earlier on, suggest that they would want if they were capable of making the decision? And sometimes, you know, sadly, with uh, some of the illnesses like dementia, they they really may not be able to articulate. And if these early conversations um, haven't happened, it's it's hard for the family sometimes, and and conflict is created, which could have been prevented. And then you described it like, let's say, if the person has dementia, so they're not competent to to deal or to advise of their advanced care plan. What then do you use? Is it just the family member's uh, wishes or the POA, the person, um, the power of attorney? Yeah, by law, it would be the the power of attorney for personal care who would make consent to treatment decisions. Um, But... um, you know, again, hopefully that individual has been chosen um, because they're able to represent the wishes of the individual. Like a POA is is supposed to, to the best of their ability, represent what they feel the wishes of that individual person would be. And POAs typically, if they're family members, would do do their decision making in a collaborative way. I mean, that would be the ideal situation and is that all the family is on the same page. One person is the legal spokesperson. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And then um, again, this is just an again, another difference in regards to hospice and of course, palliative. Can you be able to provide a definition of the difference between the two? Well, a hospice is a place. So um, it can be a freestanding community hospice, uh, or it can be in a hospital, but a a specialized unit of that hospital. So a hospice is a place. Um, The palliative approach is is a type of care. So it it can happen um, at home. You can get palliative care at home on home care. You can get palliative care in acute care hospital. You can get palliative care in a hospice (laughs) and um, get palliative care in a prison. Um, You know, so it's a, it's a, like I said, a philosophy, an approach to care uh, that is multidisciplinary, 
tries to deal not just with the medical component, but the social component, the psychological, spiritual component, uh, and much more relationship-focused and uh, quality-of-life-focused than strictly medical care would be. No, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. And now we're just going to go into, I guess, using, you know, during this time, during COVID-19, there's been a lot of technologies that have been used uh, for families, unfortunately, at the end of life uh, period. And would you say that, you know, we have more opportunities to use some of these technologies in this type of an environment, especially during the end of life? What would you say? Well, I, I think um, I think technology has has a lot to offer. So, I mean, from my perspective as a social worker, it's about relationships and communication. And technology can provide a lot of uh, opportunity for relationships and communication to be maintained, especially people who are living away. So. Um, having said that, it, it's not good for all residents and it's not as good as a face-to-face -face visit, um, but it's absolutely a value added. So uh, an example I'll use from my own experience again, my, my mother who was 94, but she was visually impaired. She had macular degeneration and really honestly couldn't understand the technology part of it. But she had three children living in a different city than she was. And we did send set up Zoom calls, but it was for them, not for her. <laughs> because if you were to ask her, she would have rather everybody phoned her one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> partly because she could understand that and partly because it took longer. <laughs> she was filling the day yes. with meaningful conversation with their family but the family you know the, the siblings liked it and yeah. uh you know if for example you're having an end-of-life um care conference in a long-term care home uh family members that live anywhere in the world frankly uh can participate in that and i i think one of the biggest um benefits is that the healthcare system in general has been extremely resistant. Um, and, you know, they have arguments of confidentiality and privacy. And I respect all those arguments, but, you know, there's been lots of barriers to uh, using technology. I mean, you can't even email your physician uh, for the most part, or uh, although you can send a fact, which I find quite odd because who knows where faxes go and who looks at them exactly. in the photocopy or like it seems way less confidential to me but anyway so I think a lot of that stuff has broken down and and um, it's been quite normalized for physicians um, and other healthcare providers to include family members in you know calls and meetings um, yeah, so I, I, and they've had to learn to adapt too. I think yes, it's it's not as easy for them as if everybody is sitting in front of you. But exactly. It 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 has its real value added. There's no question. 
Yes, absolutely. And in your research uh, study with the participatory action research, um, with that, what were the main takeaways or the lessons learned and the benefits from using that method? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a term that we use in research, participatory action research, but for people who aren't researchers, I would say that the approach basically is community development. So you already heard me reference that I, I, I think of long-term care homes as a community. And when I started working with long-term care homes with the goal of helping them implement the, you know, integrate and implement the palliative approach to care in their homes and to kind of learn as we go, because there had been very little work done. I started my work in 2008 and continued it to 2014. And there were no models or resources or tools that existed at the time, specifically for long-term care homes um, to implement. And I took a very different approach than the medical model because I think because I'm a social worker and because of my philosophy that we're really doing community development. I said, this has gotta be a bottom-up approach inside out. One thing I know does not work is if you hand a long-term care home a new list of regulations or a new assessment form or a new anything um, that comes from the outside, you know, top down, here's one more thing to do. Um, and I'll tell you a story about that. I started with the PSWs because they are the 80% of the workforce. They, they are the foundation. Um, we gathered a whole lot of information about current practices, um, found out that the, the PSWs thought palliative care and caring for residents at the end of life was a very important, meaningful part of their lives, but they felt unprepared and unsupported, and they didn't really know what their role was. It had never been talked about. Death was really hidden in the home. People were dying, but they everybody pretended it wasn't happening because somehow it was somehow perceived as a failure instead of saying, you know, this is our job in the system to support people at the end of their lives. So I gathered the PSWs together and I said, okay, you know, here we are. We're, I think there was 20 or 25 of them in a room. I said, you know, these we're, we're going to implement a palliative care program. And they all got mad. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because they said, we're already so overworked. And now on top of that, you want us to do palliative care as well. And I said, hold on a minute. You're already doing the care. Yes. What I am interested in doing is helping you do it better, to feel more prepared, so you can leave at the end of the day and feel good about your job. And I mean, they all were very skeptical, I have to tell you. But, you know, we did, we did that work for five years. And three years later, you know, when I checked in with them, they said, you know what, Mary Lou, the most vocal, anti-naysayers said, you have made our lives easier, wow. a lot harder, yeah. because we are now supported in the work we do. We have resources. 
There's stuff in the resident handbook. The home has policies. We have education. Um, I mean, and sometimes it's the small things like the very first thing I did was I asked them, well, what are your biggest struggles when you're a PSW? And they said, well, when a family's sitting vigil at the bedside of their loved one who's dying, we pop into the room, but we don't know what to say. We, what can we do? We feel helpless. And I said, well, okay, let's figure out what you can do. Anyway, they came up with a comfort care bag as an intervention that they could do, which on a practical level is basically just a dollar store gift bag with a bunch of stuff in it, but the stuff is what's important. Um, so, I mean, for the family members sitting there, there would be some brochures, what to expect when your loved one is dying. Um, why does my loved one not eat at the end of life? Brochures about grief. Then there'd be a toothbrush and a crossword puzzle. And if the resident they knew was of a particular cultural or faith community, they would often put something in, you know, something that they knew was, was their favorite. And, and then on top of that, the PSW then would take the bag, they'd see the family, they'd go in, they'd sit down and they'd say, I've brought you this and I'm very sorry for, you know, what's happening, but some of these things may be helpful to you. And then they would go through the bag, take all this talk about everything, and so all of a sudden, this problem of what to do was solved. And, and, you know, the families were supported. This costs nothing, really, yeah. uh, to do that, except a little bit of effort and time to organize um, but it was, you know, it took a year and a half to get that in place because when we came up with the idea, well, first of all, it was a basket. We couldn't have yes. a basket because of infection control. And then we had a bag. And then where would we store the bag? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it just, you know, the bureaucracy um, was not facilitative. Let's put yes. it that way. But then once we got it all going now. It's a very normalized thing. I think many, many long-term care homes have them now, but that came from our work and from the ideas of the PSWs who we worked with in the four homes that we worked with. That's great because this is part of that research study where they then would then go to other homes to kind of train other PSWs. Is that correct? Yeah, we did yeah. some of that for sure. And in fact, um, we made presentations, you know, all over Canada and, and Ontario, usually along with the PSW. And we would we would go and um, talk about it and, and did workshops. So we we uh, so we developed basically a model, seven processes of implementing palliative care in long term care. And I'll just tell you what they are, because it you know, people think it's just one thing. No, thank you. But, uh, first of all, you know, you need to, at the admission of the resident, um, inform the family that the palliative approach is provided. I mean, people were never told that. And then once the resident has settled in, as staff, you can initiate early conversations about 
people's wishes and, and advanced care planning. Uh, just normalize the conversation. It's not imminent, but if we acknowledge this is the resident's last home, um, there's a terrific question from Dr. Harvey Tochnoff, who's a dignity therapy psychologist. And he said, the question is, what do I need to know about you to take the best care of you for the rest of your life? I mean, that's all you have to say. What do I need to know about you? And then the family and the resident will say, well, these are the things you need to know about me. And those conversations are ongoing. They're not like just one-offs. So that's point two. Point three is um, keep having the conversations. Uh, there's annual care conferences that are mandated in long-term care. Part of those should always be uh, about evolving um, goals of care and, and wishes because um, then people won't be afraid of it. And part four is uh, at some point um, when the person's care needs are really advancing, they're not end of life, but it's clear um, that a change is beginning to happen. You, you can see it. Um, the resident may have had some hospitalizations, they may have had more falls, they may be getting more confused. You know, it's a good time um, to have a family care conference and having a dedicated palliative care conference with the family early on, uh, supporting them with information emotionally, helping them understand what's happening, letting them know what you can do to help them and support them and what their role is. And then five is actually the end of life uh, transition and uh, the care plan. There is a there is an end of life care plan in most long-term care homes um, involving pain and symptom management. If you needed a palliative care consult from a specialist, um, often this is a great time to uh, to get somebody to come in and, and give you a hand. Uh, but it's not always needed because if the symptoms um, are not difficult to manage, and they may not be, um, you know, well-educated and prepared long-term care staff can do an excellent job of that. And then the sixth thing is when the resident is actually dies, you know, and I think at that time, it's that just really supporting the family and, and treating the whole process respectfully uh, and with dignity. Again, another small example, but when we started, um, when families would come after the resident's death to clean the stuff out of their rooms, they'd be given a garbage bag to put the stuff in. Like, what is the metaphor there? You know, now what they do is they have these lovely um, boxes, basically kind of like a banker's box, but the hospice volunteers beautifully kind of wrap them and they'll put, you know, some lovely uh, message on the top, you know, and, and uh, families can be given this box, you know, to gather up some of the belongings of the residents. So, you know, they don't have to be big things, but they, they emphasize that this is about a relationship, it's about caring, it's about dignity, it's about respect. Um, 
And then for the staff, uh, we instituted, um, you know, a, a post-death debriefing where they could get together to support themselves. Because for these people, death is part of the job, especially in COVID. And they've got to keep going and, and uh, go to work every day and bring in that next resident who hopefully they will engage with and support. So, you know, we got management to, uh, again, policy, we got management to say, okay, you can take 20 minutes together as a staff to have a huddle after death. And that made a huge difference. I can imagine that must have been as well to acknowledge and to and to be aware of that and it, is that your last uh, seventh point or seventh point is the grief support yeah perfect and I know that we had spoken before the recording about the compassionate uh, community um, and if you can just speak a little bit more to to that yeah so um, although compassionate communities um, were not something that I was particularly aware of when I did the work, as I described to you, I, I thought very much about what I was doing as working with a community. And um, based on the work of a sociologist um, who was originally British, but lived in Australia and now is back in England, Dr. Alan Kelleher, um, he wrote a book called Compassionate Communities about 10 years ago. And he's really, talking about the, the importance of bringing dying back to the community and normalizing it as part of a life cycle in which family and community continue to take uh, a really important role. And I, I do think that one of the real problems and, and the federal government is, as you would know, um, is talking about um, standards or frameworks for palliative care and the Ontario government, as, as you referenced, is looking at legislation. And, and I believe that conceptualizing or visioning um, long-term care homes as a compassionate community would provide a much better frame uh, to then start thinking about the palliative approach to care. And it doesn't mean in a compassionate community that medical care isn't important. And it doesn't mean that residents don't need excellent personal care. But my, my opinion and my bias and my experience is that that is not going to make quality of life. That the quality of life comes from the relationships, the communication, the mutual aid, and, and that has to be nurtured from the bottom up. And I did listen to your podcast with Dr. Arya Amit, um, and he said something which I so agree with. He said, I mean, we know what to do. I mean, go to my website, www.palliativealliance.ca, all of these frameworks and models and tools, they're all there. And I'm not the only one. I'm not suggesting, you know, that, but we have lots of research evidence um, that of, of better ways to do things. 
but you cannot legislate humanistic care. And it's high touch and you need enough people and they need to be supported and educated. And we just have to have a different way of thinking about what we're doing. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And I, I don't I definitely want to thank you again, Mary Lou, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And I will reference a lot of what you've indicated um, your website in the notes so people can go to look to that and to get more information. But again, I just really want to thank you for your time for coming on and speaking on this particular subject. Thank you. My pleasure.